it's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. News Radio Studios in Midtown Manhattan. It's the fastest growing radio talk show. Brian Kilmeade. Thanks so much for being here, everybody. It's the Brian Kilmeade Show. Got a lot going on today. You know, for example, the President of the United States, we know he's in Mexico. He's going to do his team shot, his family photo with uh, presidents and their spouses of Mexico and Canada. Uh, Then he'll arrive back here tonight about 10 o'clock. They said, don't worry about it. We're not going to have any deliverables. Really? All you have is a drug cartel taking on a government about 100 yards from our border. What could be the big deal? What about the fact that uh, you got fentanyl killing more Americans than anything else coming through the cartels? And we got a wide open border. And with uh, the Canada-Mexican-U.S. trade agreement, thanks to USMCA, thanks to uh, President Trump, you would think that that would be something that they want to address. But no deliverables, but just so much at stake. So before we get to Britt Hume and Alan West at the bottom of the arrow, let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. Finding out that Gottlieb, who was the former FDA commissioner, and is a board member of Pfizer, which obviously has an enormous financial interest in the vaccines, was also pushing Twitter to suppress people he didn't like. Uh, that is Alex Berenson, been asked by Elon Musk to get busy. Yep, the Twitter files reveal more secret high-profile bans revolving around any COVID-19 message they didn't like. Like, for example, as Eric Berenson reveals, it dissects the corruption and communication that Elon Musk said existed before he bought the place. You're not going to believe who they targeted. Number two. You have to make an active effort to go down to El Paso on the border these days and not see a single migrant. It's almost impossible, and they managed to accomplish that. Bill Malusian finally focused on Biden's busted border a day after the president makes his first visit. Senators follow as cartels are in charge of the border and take aim at the Mexican government. And guess where the president is? Mexico. And the president will leave and no deal to crack down on anything. No deal to crack down on fentanyl or the number of illegals going through their southern border through our through their northern border. As we see on camera, Senator Langford just told me they picked up Chinese nationals coming through yesterday. Number one. When you saw the photograph of the top secret documents laid out on the floor at Mar-a-Lago. What did you think to yourself? How that could possibly happen. How one, anyone could be that irresponsible. Right. Uh, Joe, do you have a mirror? Check the closet. When they did, that's where we found Joe Biden's classified documents stored away since he left the vice president's office until 2017. Uh, it went there in 2017 and it stayed there until, I don't know, up until two months ago. That's exactly when Donald Trump, that's why Donald Trump got in trouble and produced an FBI raid, correct? When are they going to raid all of Joe Biden's houses and maybe even the White House? Merrick Garland and Kevin McCarthy, well, your move. Let's bring in Britt Hume. Hey, Britt, what was your reaction when you heard that top secret documents were found two months ago in the think tank uh, or the offices of Joe Biden in Washington? Well, the first time I heard about it was last night when it, when the Broke. documents were described as potentially classified. 
So my first thought was, well, until we find out if they actually were classified, there's not, you know, not too much to say about it. Um, we now 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 become a pretty clear that that's exactly what they were, which does. Um, I'm not talking about the scale here, but the same underlying issue that applies to Donald Trump with the stuff he was holding down at Mar-a-Lago. So obviously Biden is caught, you know, with all the outrage he just, he just, he uh, expressed, as you could hear in the soundbite you just played, um, in, a, in an obvious uh, situation where he's. Hypocritical about it because he was he was doing the same thing. Uh, we don't know yet on how big a, sta- a scale. So we know on November 18th, despite knowing Merrick Garland, knowing that this was the case in November 2nd, he still went ahead and asked his special counsel to investigate Donald Trump's taking of documents and bring him to Mar-a-Lago. So I guess he says now he t- took those documents and he gave them to a special uh, to a district U.S. district attorney appointed by Donald Trump in Chicago. So we'll see where this goes. We don't know if it's the same scale, but we do know there's secret documents. I mean, isn't this more of a library issue, an archive issue? Are you surprised in retrospect we had to have a raid and the and the the resulting controversy that dated back I since? Su- I was surprised about it at the time. I, you know, I, I, the th- the thing you have to have to remember about all these controversies now is that uh, documents in in Washington are wildly wildly overclassified. So there's tons of stuff still classified that doesn't yep. need to be and should not in many cases should not ever have been. So, the, so we, we, I think you know we have to take this excitement about it uh, with a grain of salt, because it's not at all clear uh, that any serious national security interests were compromised um, by the possession of these documents by people who probably should not have had them or should not should not have kept them. So that's the backdrop, um, and. You know, you see what happened with Trump. He had all these documents, and it was all this. Remember, remember Brian when there was all this talk about well, possibly uh, nuclear, nuclear secrets, secrets were involved. Yeah. And then it turned out, and the opinion of the FBI apparently was it was was that most of these documents were stuff that he kept as kind of mementos, um, you know, records of things he did and so on. Doesn't mean he should have done it, right. but it makes it a lot less serious than we were led to believe, and My, a lot less serious right. than an FBI raid would warrant. My sense is that we're going to find out about Donald Trump's political future when we find out about the decision in Georgia, whether they're going to try to indict him, and the same thing with Mar-a-Lago. So that should come down in the next few weeks, I understand, because I think New York looks like pure politics. But the other two, uh, which might be pure politics, but if that results in an indictment, that would really hamstring him, certainly uh, other things too. But if these actually gets free from those cases, it'll look like two victories. But I do want to get the other big story and that is what's happening at the border. I'm so encouraged, Britt, that there's a bipartisan group going down to the border of senators, including Mark Kelly, Senator Cinema, Senator Murphy, and they see the problem at the border. They're getting the real story. Here's what Bill, uh, here's what Bill Malusian said. Unlike what the senators saw yesterday, this is how he characterized what the president saw on Sunday. Cut 15. You have to make an active effort to go down to El Paso on the border these days and not see a single migrant. It's almost impossible, and they managed to accomplish that. And look at what he did. He started off at a port of entry. Nothing's happening at the port of entries. That's not where people are crossing. That's a CBP port of entry where people walk across the bridge. The mass illegal crossings, more than 200,000 people a month, that's happening between the ports of entries. People walking through the river. We show that video every single day. He didn't go down there and look at that. So he did go to the El Paso area, but you saw what he, what he avoided. Do you think he was well served by his staff in, in setting that up the way he did? 
Well, it depends on what the objective is, Brian. And I think that the reason why he never went to the border before now was that they didn't want the attention <clears throat> that his presence down there would inevitably cre- would inevitably cause. Um, we've been covering this story. A few other a few other outlets have, but most of the mainstream media have ignored the story. Now they can't ignore a presidential visit, so he didn't make one. Um, so and now when he finally did, because the pressure became too great to, for him to continue to at least pretend to ignore it, um, what they did was sanitize what he saw, right. so that the visibility of the problem. I don't think he. I don't think he uh, fails to understand what's going on. He knows perfectly well what he's trying to do is avoid calling attention to it. So you know they clean up the streets in El Paso and get the people out of the way. He doesn't go to the border, whereas Bill Malusian has been reporting all these crossings occur. He doesn't go to the river and so on and see any of that because if he does then the country will so he's they're still trying to the extent they can plausibly do it to uh, conceal what is really going on down there um, knowing that the mainstream media by and large will go along although some outlets have now begun to cover this story do you think it's bad enough Brad, with your years of experience to actually do something uh, for example when you have chris coons you got mark kelly you have uh, murphy as i mentioned and cinema who's technically an independent uh, go down there with Republicans. I just talked to Senator Langford on television, and I was talking to him in the break. He's like, no, these guys are sincere. I mean, the questions they're asking are the questions we're, we're asking. So if something legitimate is going to come out, it's going to come out of the Senate. Uh, they, you know, the whole bipartisan bill on infrastructure came out of the Senate, on the CHIPS bill came out of the Senate. That's any type of semblance of bipartisanship. Do you think it's bad enough for something to actually get done, being that we're not really in election season yet? Well, it's not, look. It would be it would be a good thing if if we could get agreement in Congress on a big bill that would do both border security and and create a situation where um, there might be a path to citizenship for some of the immigrants. That would be good. That's probably not going to happen because the divisions are too deep on that. But the problem with what's happening at the border now that that Joe Biden's administration has caused is that the laws that are on the books now are not being enforced. I mean, there is a requirement in law that immigrants who come across the border are to be detained. They're releasing them into into the interior of the country. So that's a that is a failure to take care, as the Constitution requires of a president, that the laws be faithfully executed. He needs to enforce the laws that we have, um, and and he won't do that for two reasons. One is that I think there's a genuine compassion for these people. They're among the downtrodden of the earth. They take these harrowing journeys to get here. Um, obviously, things where they are aren't good. And that's one reason. But another reason is that there's a, there's a sense. Uh, and among liberals and, and some elements of the Democratic Party, that these people will, will come to this country, they'll eventually be allowed to vote, and when they vote, they'll vote Democratic. It's such a long way, it's such a long route towards citizenship, I, and you see the breach, and, and you see uh, what's happening in these border communities, many of which are run by Democratic mayors. You just wonder at one point, would reason and politics, reason take over politics and then just take action? Uh, I want to bring you to the last thing is that you're one of the most active guys on Twitter. It's where you get your point of view out. You always do so much reading. You always told me and you have your point of view with this and you'll put it out there. So this is no strange. When I tell you about Twitter, you're no stranger to it. Now, Alex Berenson is with this next tranche of Twitter files. And he was asked by Elon Musk, as you know, he was banned uh, for coming out and coming out against the vaccine because he thought there were problems with it and we weren't getting the true story. And he said, hey, Elon Musk said, hey, take a look at this. So he started looking at COVID-19 communications, and they brought us to this yesterday. 
that Alex Berenson said that he found a tweet uh, that was that Scott Gottlieb had a problem with, asked to take down. Do you know the, to the tweet that Dr. Scott, Scott Gottlieb, the FDA, former FDA chief, uh, wanted to take down? It was one from Brett Giroir, who was the FDA uh, head under Trump, that came out and cited a Israel study that said natural immunity is as good as any vaccine. So Gottlieb is seen emailing to the head of compliance with Twitter, saying this is a problematic, this is corrosive. It's a problematic study. Please take it down. And they do. So they neutralized the former FDA director, Brett Girard's tweet because Gottlieb didn't like it. Paul Sperry writes a column that Adam Schiff didn't like. Adam Schiff calls Twitter and they get Paul Sperry banned. When this communication gets exposed, what, Brit, what is Britt Hume's reaction? This is, this is outrageous. Scott Gottlieb, a former FDA commissioner, is on the board of Pfizer, the company that makes one of the mRNA vaccines that, that we're all so familiar with now. So doubts that might be raised by what Brett Girard said about natural immunity uh, are something that Scott Gottlieb shouldn't go near. He's got a howling conflict of interest. He's, he's involved with a company that creates the vaccine, that markets the vaccine, and that makes money from the vaccine. So he should not be anywhere near getting involved in what people are, are saying about that, and he did. So that's manifestly clear. And Adam Schiff, who has filled the air over, over through, who filled the air all through the two years of the of the Mueller investigation of alleged Russia Trump collusion, uh, with stuff that turned out to be grossly exaggerated, if not outright false, is now trying to influence Twitter or tried to influence Twitter to shut down reporting he didn't like. That's intolerable in a free society, and you know uh, it should it should blow back on Adam Schiff like crazy. But these are the this is another one of those stories that, that the media wouldn't cover. They gave complete completely straight-faced coverage to uh, to Adam Schiff all through the time he was telling these tall tales about the evidence that he claimed to have of collusion between Trump and Russia. So the mRNA jabs, they say, uh, accounted for $42 billion of Pfizer's sales in 2021 alone, even more in 2022, and they paid Scott Gottlieb on average $365,000 a year. So Matt Taibbi, who says he's a left-wing journalist and has been a liberal his whole life, is pretty much, if I could paraphrase, astounded, he told Tucker, that we seem to be the only outlet interested. He said, any journalist, this is something we live for, something like this, to be have the communications of a major media company opened up for examination. He can't believe his left-wing colleagues, a Democrat, that lean left, have no interest in this story. What about you? You know, that's interesting, Brian, because there are a lot of ways to deal with uh, with stories that you don't particularly like. Yeah. One of them is to report it straight and, and make sure you don't ignore it because it's legitimate news. And another way would be to slant the coverage, which has been plenty of that. And another way is to just ignore it, which is what we're seeing now. We see that on the border. And we have for years. We we are seeing that with we saw that throughout the COVID pandemic with information that uh, that the, uh, the media the media were very much on the side of everybody needs to get vaccinated. We're all going to die and all that. And uh, and uh, when information comes out to the contrary, a lot of media outlets simply ignore it. That never used to happen. I know. Yeah, I mean, I was struck that yesterday with these classified documents, it was the NBC alert that I got first. And that was followed by a CBS alert. Uh, so I said, right. wow, they're actually going to cover it. And then the pool 
when Joe Biden's sitting there with the Mexican president and they're sitting there on the table and the pool is there, they will go, what about these classified documents? And I thought, is that one of the Fox guys? And I said, no, it's the pool reporter and it's not, and we're not, do, we're not at the pool right now. So maybe this is a story that people might actually address um, and we'll, we'll see where it goes. Always great talking to you, Brett. Thank you. Thanks, Brian. Good to, good to talk to you, buddy. All right. Uh, listen, when we come back, it's time for me to talk to you. one 866 Then I go to the board of Lieutenant Colonel Allen West over in Texas. A lot going on. So glad you're here. Politics, current events, and news that affects you. Brian's got a lot more to say. Stay with Brian Kilmeade. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-whim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton with Row. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. He's so busy, he'll make your head spin. It's Brian Kilmeade. And the how does this happen category, which is a topic the vice, I mean, the president just raised in his own soundbite. You're in office, you're in government, you have classified documents, but you're starting a file on a certain subject. You have unclassified assessments in there, too. They get mixed together because where you're working is okay for classified documents. When I was in the DNI, I worked in an entire floor that was a skiff. Classified documents were everywhere. Then you forget that it's a mixed file and it ends up being moved with other unclassified files. So that's how that happens. Really, John Miller making all types of excuses. He's a CNN Intel analyst on why Joe Biden would have classified files. Why not bend over backwards for President Trump? Guy wanted a few trophies. He took some boxes. There's no specific use for him, especially for a guy with no history of really reading much to his detriment. The Pew critics would always bring up Donald Trump doesn't read. He doesn't go over things. You got to give it to him verbally. It's got to be quick. He's got short attention span. So he took documents. Shouldn't have. No doubt about it. An FBI raid takes place. A special counsel is named. And Joe Biden condemns. And now we find out Joe Biden has classified documents and had them salted away since he left office when uh, as vice president. And it was only found out when they started cleaning out an office because he had the Biden Center affiliated with the University of Pennsylvania in Washington. And they found it, drumroll please, November 2nd. When were the elections? The next week. Number two, when do we find out about it? Two months later. How do we find out about it? When the White House decides with the president out of office and maybe the election way over, the holidays done with him over in Mexico, maybe this is a good time to let everybody know. The attorney general has given it to a U.S. attorney in Chicago appointed by Donald Trump. I don't think it's a big deal at Mar-a-Lago. I'm sure this is not a big deal with Joe Biden. This is the archives not having a good system to screen what leaves the White House when the administration flips, in my view.
information you want, truth you demand. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. And we've seen this for weeks. And if the president would have stopped by here, he would have seen that there are hundreds of people, and you see them here behind me, hundreds of people living in the streets of America, I should highlight. This is a city in America, in the United States. And the top executive of this country came here. He did not come to see this. Rosa Flores, a CNN correspondent, talking about the sanitized visit of President Biden. When I watched, literally for a half hour, President Biden acting fascinated that a German shepherd would be able to find drugs in a Chevy Blazer. And we're seeing this demonstration. What a joke. Lieutenant Colonel Alan West joins us now, uh, who is the American Constitutional uh, Rights Union Executive Director and so much more. Colonel, the president finally came to the border. Now he's in Mexico where the drug cartels have declared war in the government and seem to be winning. What do you think his focus should be? Well, his focus should be on his constitutional duty, according to the Constitution, to uh, protect the sovereignty of the United States of America. He's supposed to uphold those laws, but he is not doing that. And really what Joe Biden did uh, come to El Paso, really the exact same as Kamala Harris, uh, I hate to put it this way, but he gave Texas the big middle finger uh, because he he really said, you know, I'm just going to drop by. You know, I don't care what you guys are saying. Uh, I'm going to have this dog and pony did you show. Did see that uh, called? Oh, did I say that Mayorkas called what? Oh, uh, my 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 <laughs> fault. It, did you see yesterday that Mayorkas no, called out Governor thing. Abbott? Yeah, and that's the thing. I mean, you're the head of Homeland Security. You have allowed close to 5 million people to come into this country illegally, 1 million people that you don't even know where they are, and you're going to call out a governor? Uh, And and really, I mean, Governor Abbott now needs to see that he is not going to get any help from the federal government, so he needs to step up and do some things on his own, which the Constitution gives him the right to do, or else the people here in Texas, we're going to continue to suffer. Uh, there's no doubt about it. I don't know how much got changed. But what about that bipartisan centers that are down at the border? I have not seen Senator Kelly with Senator Cornyn uh, and Senator Langford, Senator Coons, Senator Murphy. And in the past on different issues, uh, most issues, I disagree with them a lot. Sometimes Coons can be logical. Sometimes Kelly can be logical. He's got the military background. But now, not in an election season, what could be der- if the Senate wanted to? Do you think they could pass a bill just on security? Yeah, they should. I mean, I don't know what more proof they need. I mean, Fox and Bill Malusian has been doing an incredible job over the past 18 months to two years showing them exactly what's going on. I guess they had to go down there and see it, as opposed to the Potemkin Village that was set up for Joe Biden. But we have the Texas Border Security Plan, which they have up at the House. So I would say that those senators over there, they need to get on board with the House and pass the Texas Border Security Plan. They're about, uh, I think, 30 to 35 uh, separate pieces of legislation to go with that. But the bottom line is that when are we going to do something about the the cartels? We're fighting an insurgency down here along our border. This is no different from fighting the Taliban. This is a uh, well-armed military force. They have intelligence sources, they have logistical uh, support, and they're making billions of dollars per month. And so we've got to see it in that way, and we have got to get operational control of our border. Yeah, and right now the cartels are taking aim at the Mexican government. They forced down yeah. a few military planes. They've killed, they've killed 50 of them, and they also uh, shot at a civilian plane. Yeah, so 
when are we going to understand that this is not just a, a business organization? This is an organization that is international, uh, and we see that with, I believe, 140-plus different countries have sent people to uh, come across our border illegally. They're taking advantage of that, and they're working with China to bring across a chemical that is killing hundreds of thousands of Americans. So Joe Biden has to get more serious than, as Pat Fallon said, 17,250 hours as president. He spent three of them at the border. Right. You know, really, uh, yesterday, a, Senator Langford, yeah, Senator Langford was there when they detained two Chinese nationals. How the yes. heck is China getting yes. here? I mean, we got 120 countries represented. The president addressed five. Well, it would not surprise me if China is sending over people that they can get across this border for future nefarious reasons. There are people that are out in West Texas. Those are the ones that don't want to get caught. They're wearing camouflage. They're wearing other dark type of clothing. They're putting uh, carpeting on the bottom of their shoes so they cannot be tracked. We've got a serious problem here. And Joe Biden, Kamala Harris, you know, Alexander Mayorkas, there's no one in charge. There's no one in control. So it's going to have to fall on, you know, these border governors. Look at what happened in Arizona with the boxcars they were putting up. And Joe Biden's administration brought a lawsuit against the state of Arizona to take them down. So they don't want the border secured. I don't care what anyone says. Joe Biden is working against the United States of America and our sovereignty. I'm really not going to argue with you on that. Uh, so to me, it's so solvable. He's got 34 percent approval rating on it. He could go up to 65 percent. He could just make him stronger. He's not going to lose one left-wing vote for doing it. You'll go out and ACLU will say stuff. But even politically, self-serving, forget about us. Forget, the president forget about us. It's okay. For your own interest, seal the border, and then you could even win over maybe some of those union members who are members of the Border Patrol Union who he decided not to meet with. Since when's the president not meeting with a union when that union was going to give him an earful? That's why. What is your reaction to the top secret documents, some of which found that the the vice president's office before he became president? Now, we know highly classified material was found, hand over to to a special counsel or a U.S. attorney, not a special counselor yet. What's your reaction to this revelation that came out last night? Well, the hypocrisy would be laughable if it weren't so serious. It's just the same as we knew about Hillary Clinton having classified information on unsecured servers that were located in, you know, open places that were hacked into. And then uh, she destroyed classified information. She destroyed government equipment. So there are two separate rules. There are the rules that apply to everyone else, and then there's the rules that apply to the Hillary Clintons, the Joe Bidens. And I know that President Trump uh, put out a, a Twitter response on this. So let's see where this goes. I know that Mayor Garland says he's going to look into it and, and appoint someone, but it, it will probably end up not going anywhere. But we have to be very concerned about the mishandling of classified information when it goes up to the highest office in this uh, in this land. Listen to this. September 18th, Joe Biden with Scott Pelley sits down for an interview, and Scott Pelley gives him this layup. Cut one. When You saw the photograph of the top secret documents laid out on the floor at Mar-a-Lago. What did you think to yourself looking at that image? How that could possibly happen. How anyone could be that irresponsible. And I thought, what data was in there that may compromise sources and methods? 
How is it possible? <laughs> Maybe you would tell us because uh, we know that at the very least, as vice president, can you imagine what other I think there's a Biden school, at the University of Pennsylvania, that's more expansive. Yeah. Imagine what other documents are there. Yeah, absolutely right. Now, the thing is, uh, the documents that were retrieved out of Mar-a-Lago were in an approved safe. They were down in a basement. You had Secret Service agents that are there and and other security uh, individuals. But what was the levels of security for these documents there at this uh, school of Biden School of Government or whatever at the University of Pennsylvania? So we have to be very concerned about that. When was the last time anybody checked, you know, the means by which they were being stored and, and making sure that they were in compliance with the right type of storage requirements that are out there? So, again, you know, you have all these things you can go back and, and the hypocrisy, again, would be laughable if it weren't so serious. It would be. Uh, So Congress went through that ugly display last week. I thought it was ugly. Some people liked it. I didn't, Uh, especially when I thought what the people are holding out for and what they eventually got, they could have gotten before the week started uh, virtually everything. So having said that, they passed the rules yesterday. Many people thought they'd have problems. They only had one defectors. If I was to give you uh, if I was to make you predict with this next Year and three quarters is going to be like because, we know, they're going to focus on reelection for the last third. What do you think they're going to be? Yeah. Uh, what, what do you think we're going to be saying about this two years with Republicans with a slim majority? Well, I think it's important to have constitutional governance restored. I think it's important to get fiscal responsibility to being restored. I came out of Congress uh, a decade ago in 2013. The debt of the United States of America was about $11 trillion. Now it's $32 trillion. Uh, omnibus spending bills are unconstitutional. We have got to get back to a budgetary system like zero-based budgeting, not baseline budgeting, where we continue to increase spending. So I think that what will come out of this is a House of Representatives that seems more functional, gets back to regular order, and gets our fiscal house back in shape. And it really does set the conditions for what could happen in 2024. Right. And regular order uh, would be with the Speaker and had 12 appropriations bills. But I don't like this, uh, Colonel. I, I, I don't like the fact that Republicans have agreed to cut defense. I mean, if Republicans aren't going to stand up for the Defense Department, nobody will, number one. I know there's waste. And I, I could I'm not equipped to evaluate the Pentagon, but I know people that are. But I think it's almost a separate conversation. Well, I will tell you this, uh, and if you remember, I, I found some wasteful programs when I was there, and it got written into the NDAA, and those programs were taken out. These diversity, equity, and inclusion programs and offices, they need to be removed. You've got one-star generals in the Pentagon that are nothing more than coffee servers. They need to That needs to be removed. We need to make sure that we're focusing our resources down to the warfighter to make sure that they're trained, that they're equipped, they're you. able to deploy yeah, and, and so I think this is a great opportunity for us to look at the overhead in the Department of Defense and start cutting back. There's a lot of uh, in the civilian secretariats that we need to look at cutting back as well. Because, you know, Democrats say, sure, I'll cut the Pentagon. No problem. That'll be fine with me. I have no interest in worrying about in being able to compete with China. I, that doesn't really bother me that uh, Europe needs that NATO needs to, some enforcement. I, I don't uh, it doesn't bother me that the special forces and recruiting got to be uh, got to be expanded. I, I don't know. I just feel as though we don't have the option. If you're a conservative, you don't have the option of abandoning the Defense Department, but you have an obligation to lead it out and make it more efficient. 
But if we don't write the yeah. check, we're going to pay the price everywhere. Well, I think the thing is that when you tell people that we're not going to be paying for hormonal therapies and gender transition surgeries and things of this nature, uh, the left is not going to be on board. We're cutting that out of the Department of Defense, and that's what we have to do. <laughs> First thing, to, we'll get a tank and a transition surgery. We'll cut back one tank and one transition surgery. I'll agree to that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> all right, uh, Congressman Colonel Alan West, thanks so much. God bless, man. Take care, Brian. Go you, get him. All right, I will. Uh, 12 minutes have you for the top of the hour. Good chance to talk to you. 1-866-408-7669. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. So glad you're here. Diving deep into today's top stories, it's Brian Kilmeade. From his mouth to your ears, it's Brian Kilmeade. Finding out that Gottlieb, who was the former FDA commissioner and is a board member of Pfizer, which obviously has an enormous financial interest in the vaccines, was also pushing Twitter to suppress people he didn't like. Um, not just me, but in one case, a fellow Trump administration appointee um, who followed him as the acting FDA commissioner. Uh, later in 2019. That's how much Scott Gottlieb and Pfizer didn't want discussion of the vaccines. I mean, as you heard Britt Hume uh, earlier this hour, Dr. Scott Gottlieb, I think he's really good on TV. I watched him every every weekend on Face the Nation. We'd always use sound bites here. And he would join the Trump officials. He kept intact and he seemed very level headed. But he would not be introduced on Face the Nation without saying I'm a board member of Pfizer. So knowing that in real life, in the secret life, in a communication never meant to be public, that you went out of your way to say Brett Gerard, who was FDA, uh, head of the FDA, he was see- and, a, and a military officer, looked at an Israeli study and says this shows, he tweeted this out, this shows that natural immunity is, is better than any vaccine. He says that's not helpful, and they actually shelve and freeze that, uh, that tweet. Much like they did with Trump. They, in the beginning, before they banned him, they would just take out a tweet and say, that's dangerous. That's insightful. We'll get rid of it. They did it to Brett Dror on the urging of Dr. Scott Gottlieb, who makes $365,000 a year minimum from Pfizer as a board member. Here's more from Berenson, Cut 18. The files, it's, it's a mistake to think of them as some huge data dump that we can all go through. It's an iterative process where we're questioning Twitter about what's in there, and they're coming back to us with answers. So we'll know more in a couple of weeks about Fauci, about uh, Rochelle Walensky, and about everything else. Yeah, and, and Fauci's next as CDC files come out. So there's a lot of political operatives through the FBI that are saying, let's squelch this tweet. Let's forget about this point of view. Let's make sure this influencer is not as influential at all. First person I heard that do, being done to is Don Jr. The other one was Dennis Prager and Prager, uh, Prager U. He had all these videos of great success and all these hits. And all of a sudden, they, they got stopped. He said, wait, I must be shadow banned for some reason. I can't get any clicks on these things. And what happened is they didn't want to hear it. They didn't want to hear about PragerU. They didn't want to hear about values. They didn't want to hear about conservative thought. They didn't want to hear the correct view of history. And he's the first one to speak up and say, social media is banning me. And a lot of people say, no, come on, you're being a little paranoid. It's your business model. 
So uh, I, I think that this is just the beginning. And then in come these COVID files. The COVID files show people just want to protect the uh, vaccine and protect the president's message. Make sure ivermectin wasn't pushed forward, even if it was brought up in a congressional setting, in a Senate hearing. That's what scared Dr. Nicole Sapphire, Cut 19. In medicine, you always have to replace subjectivity with objectivity. And so when you see, which we saw in the Twitter files, when you call for something to be called misinformation without giving the factual evidence behind it to prove it, it calls into question the motivation as to why you're wanting it to be called misinformation. What came out of the Twitter files tonight, particularly that upset me the most, was the tweet about children being low risk for COVID-19 and how that was trying to be labeled as misinformation. As a mother of three, you could obviously know that I have been heavily invested into collecting data when it came to kids in COVID-19. And the fact that us in the United States still can't even produce data showing how many healthy children have died from COVID-19 is appalling. If any, uh, if any have died. First, uh, you know, it's not that dangerous. It's dangerous. It's there. It's real. They're targeting kids. No, excuse me. Could you show me the data? And the, most of the data that we got was from Israel. Controlled study, more organized, smaller country. Made it easier. I got it. But they were much more organized, much more determined. And by the way, they were very oppressive. They were very aggressive and oppressive uh, to their people when they were some positives. So now in, re- in retrospect, how do you feel about that? Adam Schiff calling up, making sure Paul Sperry's columns don't see the light of day. Berenson gets sidelined by the medical community in the federal government. And he's a New York Times writer at one point and novelist who said, I got huge problems with the science behind the vaccine. So let's get rid of them. That just doesn't happen here, I didn't think. And that's why it's so important. That's why, to me, it's so stunning. It's so stunning that the people outside Fox are saying that this is a lot of nothing, these revelations. I don't know, maybe because you agree that uh, I'm, you know, I'm not anti-vaccine, but I'm open to the fact that it was experimental and it was pushed forward quickly, and I want to see all the studies. Why are people hiding the results of the studies? Because they didn't like it, denying that microchonditis was a real thing. From high atop Fox News headquarters in New York City, always seeking solutions, never sowing division. It's Brian Kilmeade. Hey, thanks so much for being here, everybody. It's the Brian Kilmeade Show. Coming to you from 48th and 6th in Midtown Manhattan. Heard around the country, heard around the world, and hopefully you're watching the stream on Fox Nation. Another reason to get that great app. This hour, joined by Brad Meltzer. We're going to do a simulcast on Varney and Company on FBN. It'll be great. We share each other's audiences. And Gerard Baker standing by with the Wall Street Journal. You know him. He also hosts the Wall Street Journal at large, 730s on Fridays. I know you watch. Uh, We'll talk about what's at stake politically. We know the President of the United States is still in Mexico. He's going to come back. I guess tonight around 10 o'clock, he's going to do one of those family photos with the wives and with Trudeau and Oberdor. But the big, the big problem is there's no deliverables. How do I know? They said there's no deliverables. Uh, with everything on stake with Mexico, with the cartels trying to take over the country, with our border flat out busted, fentanyl flooding through. Yeah, I just had a good meeting about climate change, probably. Yeah, let's take away gas ovens. That'll help. Big three. 
Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. Finding out that Gottlieb, who was the former FDA commissioner and is a board member of Pfizer, which obviously has an enormous financial interest in the vaccines, was also pushing Twitter to suppress people he didn't like. Pretty amazing. Alex Berenson, in charge of Twitter files, the last tranche, revealed more high-profile bans revolving around COVID-19 message that they didn't like. Berenson dissects the corruption and communication for Elon Musk. And guess what? Scott Gottlieb right in the middle of it. Number two. You have to make an active effort to go down to El Paso on the border these days and not see a single migrant. It's almost impossible, and they managed to accomplish that. Yeah, Bill Malusian finally focused on the border is Biden. A day after the president makes his first visit, senators follow uh, on and they go to real places with real problems, with real gaps in the fence, with real illegal immigrants. And guess where the president is? Mexico. Does he understand what's at stake? Probably not. Number one. When you saw the photograph of the top secret documents laid out on the floor at Mar-a-Lago, what did you think to yourself? How that could possibly happen. How one, anyone could be that irresponsible. Right. How about looking in the mirror? Do you have one? Check this out. And check the closet. That's where we find Joe Biden's classified documents from his days as vice president, which he had no ability to declassify. Isn't that exactly what Trump did? Why did they raid Joe's house? Why did they raid all of Joe's houses? And I believe there's a Biden center elsewhere it is Biden's school of government. What other documents are stashed away there? Gerard Baker joins us now. Hey, Gerard, always great to have you on. First off, your reaction to this revelation. Well, you know, I mean, there's, there's a lot we don't know. Uh, well, thank you very much for having me on, Brian. I'm probably the last person to say it to you and your listeners. Happy New Year. But um, yeah, there's, there's a lot of detail we don't know. What strikes me about it, though, is the way in which the media have immediately rushed to say, Oh, this is completely different from Mar-a-Lago and Donald Trump. You know, I mean, we don't know quite exactly what it was. We all we know so far is that were documents were found in a, you know, in 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 a at an office uh, at, his, uh, at, the, at the university uh, where he was after he stepped down as vice president. We know the classified documents. We know obviously he shouldn't have been holding them. So we know, we, you know, so we know very bare limits of the story. It supposedly said that you know his staff uh, volunteered to the authorities that they found them. But 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 the truth is, we know we know the bare minimum of the story, and yet the media has rushed immediately to say. Oh, you can't possibly compare this to Donald Trump and Mar-a-Lago. You know, it was a pri- it was an office. It wasn't a private residence, uh, and that's it. That's literally that's kind of literally all they know. So I don't know. We're going to have to wait and find out exactly what this was. I mean, but but it's another example. Uh, I, the larger point, Brian, I think that worries me and has always worried me about this Mar-a-Lago uh, business is that while it does look as though President Trump should not have clearly should not have had those documents, should not have kept them there and should probably have been more cooperative. Are we really going to prosecute people uh, for this? Is the, pres- is the former president really going to be prosecuted for this? It just seems to me that this has happened so many times. We saw it you know, with Hillary Clinton's uh, private emails. We saw it with Sandy Berger and the famous when he put his – when he took documents away in his socks. It's very, very rare – that these, you know, it's wrong. It shouldn't happen. It's, you know, with the protection of uh, presidential archives and classified material is extremely important for the country. But the idea that somehow it always seems to be with Trump that, that you know, the authorities seem to be always out to get him in a way and to do things to him that doesn't happen to others. So, well, you know, we'll have to wait and see exactly what's the reality of these papers that were found with Biden. But I'm just always struck that, that, that there's always that the media are always quick to excuse anything a Democrat does, anything a Biden does, anything anything Biden does, anything a Democratic president does, without really 
knowing what the facts are. Have you want an example? How about John Miller, the CNN Intel analyst, former ABC anchor, who used to work for uh, Commissioner Bratton on CNN? Cut three. In the how does this happen category, which is a topic the vice, I mean, the president just raised in his own soundbite, you're in office, you're in government, you have classified documents, but you're starting a file on a certain subject. You have unclassified assessments in there, too. They get mixed together because where you're working is okay for classified documents. When I was in the DNI, I worked in an entire floor that was a skiff. Classified documents were everywhere. Then you forget that it's a mixed file and it ends up being moved with other unclassified files. <laughs> so that's how that happens. Oh, okay. Now I get it. Now I understand. I bubble wrapped too much. I over I overwrapped. Uh, that's what happens. So since it, it happened November 2nd, Gerard, we found out about it November. We found out yesterday. So two months. Yeah. Now, after this was found on November 2nd, it didn't stop the AG from on November 18th announcing that Jack Smith will be the special counsel investigating Trump and Trump files. And Trump came out and said, hey, uh, when are they going to start raiding his all of his houses? So uh, it didn't stop him from doing it. They sent all this stuff to the uh, U.S. Law, uh, US attorney uh, located in Chicago, appointed by Donald Trump. So we'll see where that happens. Gerard, your take on last week. Some people are thinking that Republicans come out stronger. Your column seems to indicate that they're not. No. I mean, voters never reward evidence of division. Of party. Look, and don't get me wrong, I think there's a lot of things that were – extracted from uh, Kevin McCarthy and the leadership by those Republican rebels last week, which are good. A lot of people have no need to go over this in great detail, but but ensuring that, you know, we don't get any more of those sort of horrible omnibus spending bills, ensuring that there is a higher degree of accountability, frankly, a higher degree of scrutiny and the opportunity also for, uh, for, for and a slight loosening, let's say, at least of the leadership's iron-like grip on, on the proceedings of the House. All those are good things. I, I don't dispute that. The larger picture, though, Brian, is that this was um, the way in which this was done, um, the spectacle of 15 ballots and particularly that final bizarre and rather grotesque spectacle uh, after the 14th ballot of uh, McCarthy confronting Matt Gaetz. Voters don't don't like evidence of parties that are divided, and that's a, for a very good reason. We have political parties for a very good reason, Brian, which is that they are a collection of like-minded people. They don't agree on everything. They disagree on lots of things, but they broadly come together around an agenda that they want to implement, that they want to govern, that they want to change the country so that they actually – to make the country a better place. That's what political parties exist for. If you don't have a, if you don't have unity, at least at least unity around some common objectives in a party, then you're not going to be able to achieve that because the country doesn't know where you want to go. And secondly, as I say, voters won't reward you. In my column today, I just contrast the state of the Republican Party, uh, as it has been, especially for the last few years, but as it was on display last week, with the state of the Repu- with the state of the Democratic Party, and contrast how those parties used to be. Democratic Party, you know, famously, Will Rogers said, you know, I'm, I'm I'm not a member of any organized political party. I'm a Democrat. That used to be the view, the image of Democrats. They were kind of ideological. They were purists. They didn't really care about governing. They just wanted to be right. They just wanted to have arguments yeah. about you know, ideological perfection. Uh, look at what they've done in the last two years, Brian. They've taken a country that's a 50-50 nation by any whatever, however you measure it in the 2020 election. Biden won narrowly. They, the Senate was split 50-50, and they lost seats in the House. The House was more or less 50-50. They took a 50-50 nation, and through iron discipline and through a sense of making sure that they were able to achieve their priorities, they identified their priorities, they united around the priorities – 
they were halfway to transforming the country, you know, in ways that you and I, Brian, find that, and most of your listeners, I think, find are absolutely appalling. Five trillion dollars of spending, uh, advancing the woke agenda everywhere, getting their uh, judicial nominees through, achieving everything. They energy. Want to basically, basically a, a, a energy, you know, essentially, you know, trying to tr- in this incredibly costly transformation of the U.S. energy market, opening the border of the United States to pretty well anybody. They managed, they united around that agenda to achieve that. And they've done an extraordinary, you know, whatever, whether you like it or not, we don't like it. They've actually shown what a political party can do when it's united. The Republicans need to get their act together. They're, they just, you know, the Republicans need to decide three or four things that are really important for this country, and they need to get on with it and do it. And they need to stop giving this impression to the American people that they are much more interested in posturing and preening and being ideologically pure and being able to attack yep. their opponents rather than actually uniting around things that need this country desperately needs and which the Democrats have managed to advance in the last two years in a ruinous direction. Absolutely. Outside the chips bill, uh, I can't see. And there's some infrastructure things that we needed done, but uh, at what cost? Larry Summers yeah. uh, is getting some heat for coming out and saying we need unemployment to go up in order for inflation to go down. Uh, do they? Does he realize that these are people? So he wants people to lose their jobs and their livelihood in order for inflation to go down and the economy to get well. Is that the only calculus you see? Well, look, he's he's obviously invoking the spirit of, you know, uh, the people in the past, people like Paul Volcker, famously um, sir, president, chairman of the Fed back in the early 1980s uh, when we had uh, inflation was a huge problem. Volcker increased interest rates. We had a deep, deep recession. Millions of people lost their jobs. It was a miserable time for the country. The argument is that's the only way to get on top of inflation. You know, with that no, no pain, no gain. No, you know, if it isn't hurting, it isn't working. Is, is the old is the old saying. Now, I, I don't. I mean, I you know, I, the the, the that you know, and again, even the Fed is to some extent expecting that. The Fed is now aggressively pushing interest rates higher. They expect unemployment to arise by at least a percentage point in the course of this year. That's, again, a couple of million people who are going to lose their jobs. Is that necessary to get on top of inflation? We don't know just quite now. I mean, I, I do incline towards the view, and I have for the last year, that inflation is a real problem and that the Fed has massively underplayed it and the Biden administration essentially ignored it and denied it and, and made it much worse, of course, by spending huge amounts of money. Um, and inflation is now out of the box, and we have to find a way to put it back in. Is the answer... Constantly higher interest rates and higher unemployment. Uh, well, the evidence is encouraging that it may not be because the, the, the key to Larry Summers' argument is, look, we need to get wage rises to moderate because if wage rises don't moderate inflation, it's a, it's a vicious cycle, right? Companies will have to put up wages, then they'll put up prices, then workers will demand higher wages, and we, that's how we get into an inflationary spiral. Uh, and therefore, what you have to do is, unfortunately, you have to raise unemployment so you weaken the labor market so that employ, labor, weak workers have less leverage over their employers, and therefore wages start to come down, wage, wage increases start to come down. The encouraging evidence we have seen, I have to say, at the end of last year, Brian, is that wages are maybe starting to moderate, even as unemployment stays very, very low. We're seeing the rate of wage inflation uh, actually easing to, you know, from where five or six percent, where it was early uh, early last year, to down to three or four percent. It's still too early to say. We just don't know at this point. But there are encouraging signs that it might be possible that we could get uh, inflation down without a big increase in unemployment. And then the big risk is, is the Fed in danger of going too far? Having made the mistake on the upside with inflation, getting that inflation picture wrong on the upside, not, not, not understanding that inflation was taking off and therefore ignoring it. Are they in danger of making the risk now, making the mistake now on the downside of overkill, of raising interest rates too high and pushing up unemployment when it might not be necessary? Right. Uh, 
what do you think the effect of uh, China is going to be in the, on the supply chain for them? The COVID cases are booming. Uh, we know their economy has been slowing regardless. We know what they've, they've cracked down nationalizations on major companies. Where are they heading economically, and how does it affect us? They're in trouble economically. Look, there's two things going on in China. One is a short-term thing, and one is a longer-term thing. The short-term thing is exactly as you say. They, they first of all, they had the COVID, they had the COVID zero policy for a year or more, which was a disaster. The two years, which was a disaster. You know, we saw all those pictures of people being locked in their houses, and it caused tremendous social unrest. Now they've opened up finally. They've agreed to open up, and COVID, of course, is roaring as you would expect it would through the community, a country that has no no natural immunity, where the vaccines don't work at all. There's no evidence of that vaccines work. And, and COVID, there are tens and tens of millions of cases arising every day uh, by some estimates in China. Now, that is going to have a damaging effect on China's uh, econ- economy and on the world supply chain to some extent. So that, that is, that's, a, that, that's, that's damaging to the Chinese economy in the short term. The longer term problem, Brian, they have is a much deeper one, actually, which is that First of all, they've run out of kind of they've run out of the the, the, the phase where you could grow very rapidly as a developing economy. Um, that's just that happens to every developing economy, but it's particularly acute for them because they've got a terrible population profile. They have got because of their years and years and years of one-child policy, they're going to get they they've got they've got very they've got a shrinking workforce and they've got a growing a population that's growing old. As people say, growing old before it gets rich. So China China's got real long-term problems. And look, the other problem, and I do think this, and this is a concern for all of us, is that we. We are seeing a shift away. I, I think a good one. I think this is necessary in the long term. I think it was outrageous and wrong that American companies were essentially helping China uh, with its technological uh, advances over the last 20 or 30 years. U.S. companies, all companies are now pulling out of China in significant ways, partly because costs are too high, partly because of geopolitical risks. And they're going to, and they're thankfully bringing many jobs back to the United States, taking jobs uh, to other countries too. That is going to have a, another effect. So that is probably going to raise prices over the long term too, because American workers are paid more. They have higher wages. They have more skill. So I think we are going to see we are going to see China struggling. I think it's going to struggle in the short term for a while. It's going to struggle in the longer term for a while. And I think in the longer term for all of us, that's going to be it's probably going to be more security, political security, and more economic security in the long term. But it is probably going to push up. Uh, it is going to lead to another increase in inflationary pressures. But over the over the next right. five or ten years, uh, it's going to be harder for us to get uh, to keep a lid on. Yeah, but the one thing I would say is explain to people what's going on and how this is for our long-term uh, national security. That would go a long way to explaining uh, some of the pain we're going to be going through uh, because of that. Uh, but Gerard Baker, always educational, always interesting to talk to you. Uh, get his last column uh, on the Wall Street Journal. He's uh, the, the Wall Street Journal at large, uh, at large Friday show at 730 on FBN. Uh, Gerard, thank you. Thanks very much, Brian. Have a good day. You got it. Uh, We come back, your calls. And then at the bottom of the hour, one of the great historians and most creative minds in our country, Brad Melter in studio with a conspiracy you have not heard before revolving around Stalin, Churchill, and FDR. Honest commentary, unique opinions, no agenda. It's Brian Kilmeade. A talk show that's real. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. Hey, uh, welcome back, everybody. In in a few minutes, I'll bring Brad Meltzer in. 
the outstanding author. Uh, HB, uh, you know, he's got the kids' books as well as the adult books. He has a show on uh, on History Channel, and he definitely his contacts with the Pentagon are impeccable. As also his relationships with the uh, the Bush family is uh, phenomenal, and what he knows uh, about both parties and in. And information on intelligence is great. So he's going to be within the studio, and then we'll do Varney and Company on FBN. Uh, also, I think it's important to point out uh, in the big picture, the thing I don't understand is everyone's asking me if I'm doing a dry January. Where, Eric, do you even know where that comes from, the dry January? As in no drinking in January? Yeah, like where did that come from? Like why is that necessary? I don't know. Why, why January? I don't know. I guess it's... I guess it's because we're coming off a new year's done on the right way. Oh, it could be after a month of binging on food and drink. But it's not like we're all in a 12-step program. I mean, for for some of us, once in a while, I want to have a beer and don't want people wanting to ask me, am I having a dry January? Like, why are people guilting you into not drinking? And why are people making such a big deal that they're not drinking? Maybe New Year's resolutions, people are starting off. Right. But if you're having a tough time not having a drink in January, that might be a problem. I know I want to drink in January. I, that's why I sleep well, so well at night. It's the coldest month of the year, of course. Exactly. Yeah. My liver said, don't ever dry me out. A radio show like no other. It's Brian Kilmeade. Hey, we are back. Uh, thanks so much for listening, everybody. And keep in mind, in 15 minutes, we do a simulcast on FBN. But right now, one of my favorite times of the show, any show, when Brad Meltzer's in studio, best-selling author, host of the Fox Nation series, Brad Meltzer's Greatest Conspiracies of All Time. And his latest book is now out, uh, The Nazi Conspiracy. Uh, and uh, two books are out. One it comes out next week. I am John Lewis. Uh, Brad, welcome back. Uh, thank you for having me. All right, so let's talk about this this latest expedition that you're on. You're always trying to find something, you know, something uh, that is well known, but something unknown about something well known. I think you got the mix of both this time. Yeah, this is the new book out today. It's called "The Nazi Conspiracy: The Secret Plot to Kill FDR, Stalin, and Churchill at the Height of World War II." And I found this story in this, you know, again, it was almost like a footnote. It was like a little half page page story. And the story started like this is uh, it's the first meeting. It's 1943. It's when Stalin wants us to invade continental Europe. He's getting decimated by the Nazis. He needs help. We're sending weapons, but he wants us to actually invade through the east. And this is the moment where Churchill realizes – like, so does England. Everyone – right. Everyone does. And, and basically uh, FDR realizes we got to get on the same page. Get everyone together, talk about troop movements, talk about Normandy, talk about what we're going to do. And this is the first big meeting. So they bring in FDR. They put him in the motorcade. Everyone's excited to in see. In Tehran. In Tehran, Iran of all places because Stalin's like, meet there or I'm not meeting at all. And that's what he sets out. And basically everyone's excited to see the president. They're waving. They're you know looking at the motorcade. In the motorcade, though, is not the president. It's actually a Secret Service agent acting as a decoy. And Brian – the real FDR is across the city, ducked down and hiding in the back of a beat-up sedan because they're worried someone's going to murder him. I just ruined chapter one of the Nazi conspiracy, okay. but, that, but that's chapter one. And we started with that, and Josh mentioned I, my co-writer on the book, we're like, we need to answer those questions. You know, what Nazis are after them? Why is the president scared? And why is he hiding in the middle of World War II? 
Right. Uh, so you have a situation you explained to me, too, in the break. You reminded me. So when World War II, uh, before World War II actually starts, you know, the Germans uh, get beat up pretty bad in World War I. They get punished to the point where their economy is uh, in the toilet. And it it's, leaves it wide open for somebody to emerge and take over and ends up being this Austrian named Adolf Hitler, this corporal. And he ends up saying, we're going to restore greatness and pride to the German people. And next thing you know, that's not enough. I got to take the Sudetenland. I got to take this. I got to take a little bit of Poland, all of Poland. And then suddenly Winston Churchill realizes this is going to be a huge problem. You can't appease someone like them. We still haven't learned that message. Yeah, that message uh, listen, that message is repeating through our news currently today. We all think, you know, the Holocaust doesn't start with death camps. It starts with slogans and rallies and propaganda and a guy who's willing to basically play on your fears, your economic fears, and say these people are going to take away your way of life. So you have the communists in Soviet Union. And right in the beginning, Stalin and uh, Hitler make it clear Hitler, Hitler makes clear, I don't got a problem with you, Soviet Union. They're on the so same they side. Signed a, yeah, they signed a non-aggression act. I won't, I won't invade. Well, thankfully, he does invade the Soviet Union, not to the millions that died, obviously. They used a scorch-earth policy. They actually back up. They suck the Germans in. They get hit by the winter. In the end, Stalin ends up needing the West. The, he becomes a key allied power. And, and it's only because of his own self-interest. You know, when, when Leningrad happens, when the, when the siege happens— the Nazis circle Leningrad, and we talk about this in the book, and what they do is they don't want to deal with POWs. So they circle the city, and they say, we're going to starve everyone to death. And it happens quickly, and suddenly people start looking to eat their dogs. They're looking to eat rats, and then eventually they start looking at each other and think the unthinkable. And within uh, uh, no time at all, it is the greatest single loss of human life in a major city in history. In a year, 900,000 people are dead. Stalin needs help. He's not doing. He's not fighting the Nazis because he thinks, oh, this is a bad message. He's fighting it for his own self-interest. He was on the side of the Nazis at the start of the war. It's only, as you said, when the, when the Nazis invade the Soviet Union that he says maybe we should get on the Allied side. So where is, where, what is the state of the German war machine when the Tehran conference takes place? Yeah, so what happens is there's a guy – there's a couple of Nazis we should talk about. There's a guy named Franz Mayer. Uh, Tehran, Iran actually starts on the other side, but we take it over. The Allies take it over because there's a, a railroad. The Trans-Iranian Railroad is how we're shipping all our armaments to the Soviet Union. And Stalin basically says, I want to meet in Tehran because, one, the railroad's there and we have security. The British have security. The British have an embassy. We have an embassy. And in the desert, we can meet secretly and no one will see us. And what they don't know, what Stalin doesn't know, FDR doesn't know, and Winston Churchill doesn't know – is there are actually Nazi spies on the ground in Tehran. And there's a guy named Franz Mayer who is, truthfully, they forget, that Berlin forgets about him. They think he's dead. They think he's lost. He was there at the start of the war, but he disappears. He spent two years making uh, groups of Nazis who are sympathetic to the Nazi side and eventually reaches out to them and he says, listen, I got a drop zone. I have a place for you to send me weapons. I have a place for you to send me money. Here's the secret codes to do it. And... In that moment, the Nazis have the most important thing anyone needs in a fight, an opportunity. And they realize that the big three are coming to Tehran and they got a guy on the ground. And now anything goes because we're using, you know, at that time, we're using assassination as weapons. When Admiral Yamamoto, who's the architect, the Japanese architect who, uh, who sets up Pearl Harbor, we have a shot to, to take a shot at him in World War II. They said, FDR, you want to kill him? And FDR's quote at the time is, get Yamamoto. 
and we kill them. We take them out. Of course, there are plots to kill Hitler. They go after him in the Alps. They go after him on trains. Yeah. And so when the big three are meeting, it's a tantalizing target for the Nazis to come and take them all out. And we won't give away – obviously, it doesn't take place. Uh, and if that was to happen, it would be a cycle. We have things built in place. Of course, there would be another bureau dictator to take over for Stalin, but there would be no leadership. There would be no personal knowledge and strategies, and it would be devastating. Oh, and, and, not, and wait do you see how close it comes. Is a, the, the other Nazi who's the most fascinating one in the book is a guy named Otto Skorzeny. And Adolf Hitler brings together all of his special operations guys, and he lines them up at the Wolf's Lair at his secret headquarters, puts them shoulder to shoulder in a big room. He wants to figure out who's the best for this mission. And he asked this question of them. He says, what do you think of Italy? And they all kind of kiss the, the rear end of the boss and say, oh, we love Italy. We all stand strong They're with Italy. fellow fascists. Fellow fascists. We, you know, we love them to death. And one guy, Otto Skorzeny, this one Nazi, blurts out above everybody else and he says, I am from Austria, my Fuhrer. And he's gambling because he knows Hitler's from Austria. And he knows that a real Austrian resents Italy forever because in World War I, Italy took a key part of Austria and never returned it. And Adolf Hitler looks at this Nazi Otto Skorzeny and is like, you're my guy. And he sends him on a secret mission in the plot to kill uh, Lincoln uh, – Lincoln, uh, in the plot to kill FDR and Stalin and Churchill. And he sends him on this mission that is so crazy, Brian. You'll see they, they anticipate an 80 percent casualty rate. There's Nazis flying from the sky. They're coming in. It's so bananas that we asked our publisher. We said we need to put a photograph in the book. Because otherwise, people won't believe that this really happened. So when you're reading the Nazi conspiracy, you will see – I won't ruin it, but you'll see this mission that Hitler sends Otto Skorzeny on. And it's the most amazing Nazi story you've never heard in your life. Wow. So then that is out today. Out today. Right. And, uh, and, and obviously the book – listen, we the, the key part of the book is – and is when we start these books, we always say, what's the book really about? Not just the plot to kill the big three, but what's it really about? And, and of course, about we're seeing history repeat today in our culture. We're seeing the rise of authoritarians again. We're seeing that communities are being picked on and fears are being played on and manipulating people in economic insecurity. And, you know, one of the great moments of the book and, and horrible moments of the book is a moment where we see a, a rally in Madison Square Garden, a Nazi rally in World War II. 20,000 people show up to cheer for the Nazis in New mm. York City. And they're basically – there's a big picture of George Washington with a swastika and all these swastikas. And, they, and the first speaker of the night says, if George Washington were alive today, he'd be friends with Adolf Hitler. Right. And that's not that long ago. We, you know, we're still fighting Nazis in see, 2023. I see the same thing with Ukraine. I don't know why people don't see that. You have a country like Russia, a belligerent nation that needs to be brought to heel – who are getting nothing but uh, a re uh, affirmation for what they're doing. They took a part of Georgia, they kept it. They took Crimea, they kept it. They go into Syria, they kept Assad in power. So now they feel, I might as well take Ukraine. They, it never belonged to be a separate country anyway. Listen, it and takes they've your taken voice. 15% of the country, and people say, well, don't worry about it. How could you not worry about I that? I mean, this is the exact repeat of World War II. The only, in fact, when we wrote the book, obviously Ukraine hadn't happened yet, and we show scenes in the book where you see the Nazis invade Ukraine, killing people there, killing innocents there, taking land there. And this is exactly what the Soviets back then were fighting against, and now they're fighting for. It's incredible to me that if we don't use our voices when we see attacks like this, I'm, I'm, I'm shocked that people see it any other way. When you, you know, To me, the American dream is not you get to make money. The American dream to me is also when you see someone being picked on, when you see yeah. someone being taken advantage of, you use your voice, you stand up, and you say no. And this is the moment, and you know, we all say, oh, in World War II, I would have fought the Nazis, I would have stood up. 
here's your chance to stand up. Right, absolutely. And that's why they'll fight. Just give them the weapons. Uh, the Nazi Conspiracy, the name of the book. Uh, you'll find out how history better not repeat itself, but a plot you didn't know about. Thanks so much, Brad Meltzer. Appreciate it. Thank you, sir. Back in a moment, Barney and Company, simulcast, and then we'll squeeze in some calls at the other end. Don't move. Now, the Brian Kilmeade Show joins Fox Business's Varney and Company with Stuart Varney, live on your radio and on Fox Business. Here's Brian Kilmeade. Hey, uh, welcome back, everyone. In a matter of moments, we're going to go with the hottest show on FBN, no doubt about it. Uh, Larry Kudlow and uh, Stuart Varney have two of the best shows in television, uh, let alone in business. Uh, I'll go on with uh, Larry on Friday, but in a matter of moments, we're going on with Stuart Varney. And believe it or not, uh, we're not going to be talking soccer, but we're going to talk a little Prince Harry, a little about the championship yesterday as Georgia wins uh, substantially. And then we'll take some calls at the bottom end. So be first, one 408 7669 So let's listen in together. 51 Eastern Time. That means it's time for Brian Kilmeade. Hey, Brian, Prince Harry's memoir, Spare, officially hit store shelves today. And the prince is responding to claims that he sold out his family to make money. Bear with us, Brian. Just watch this a moment. Roll it. Some critics are going to say, well, you're taking private struggles. You're making money off of them. You're getting paid from it. So it's almost as if you've sold out your family. The only way that I can protect us, the only way that I can correct those mistruths is by writing something, (laughs) the truth, in one place. Then I fully accept that writing a book is feeding the beast anyway. Uh, Look, Brian, I've had enough of this. It's absolute nonsense. How about you? His explanation was awful, as if yeah. he didn't pre-think it. Number one, I don't like when people say he's dumb. I, I, I think that's, I think he made a very bad move. See, I always laugh about when people like Katie Couric or other write these tell-all books where they make people look ter- terrible because they want to sell books, and they think, well, what about the next day? Six months from now, and it's off the bestseller list, mm-hmm. what is left of your life? And a lot of these things, number one, I would say this to his credit. I don't think Megan put him up to this. Everyone's, everyone who knows, who follows the royal say, Megan changed it. Not, not really. I think he definitely has issues with his mother dying. People can understand it. Definitely in a, in a royalist family that's not the warmest family. Obviously, it was tough growing up, and I understand that part of it. That's an interesting part that people who lost a, a, a parent early on can relate to. But when he goes and starts telling these uh, other stories, uh, the stab in the back, uh, the William and other things, I feel like I want to take a shower. And even yeah. though it's yeah. interesting yeah. when famous people talk— I'm not someone who goes to the, co- the gossip column, White Reads People magazine for that, or the E! channel to get something about somebody else's life I have no business knowing. And the other thing about Harry, number one, is I don't think he can keep blaming his wife. because And then to walk back the racial charges, not only does he say the family is racially, uh, indicate they're racially insensitive, so is the press, the British. Wow, you really express the all of press to be basically have racist tendencies or naively say racist things. That is something you could goes beyond alienation. And the last thing I would say is uh, in the big picture is don't expect ever to be invited back uh, and to think that he's even going to go back to the coronation of who could be his dad, uh, the king, because he indicates that his could dad be. has said to him once, I don't even know if I'm your father. 
So if he thinks he's going back there for that, it's done. So I hope he has enough money because I don't know what he does. He even alienated the military by saying how many kills his unit has, which goes against everything that anybody who fights or puts on the uniform says. He's burnt all his boats, and I've had enough. I don't want to hear any more. So I'm going to move on. You did ask me, though, by the way. Don't get mad at me. I did. That's true. That's true. Because I know you're fired up about it, so I wanted to give you a soapbox to to pound the table. College football, Georgia dominated TCU, national championship game, 65-7. to 7. Look, Brian, I really don't follow college football. Are you telling me that the Georgia Bulldogs are now the best college team in the land bar none? Uh, yes, I think no one would argue with that. How could a team that scored over 40 points against Michigan... Uh, actually fall on his face like that? Is Georgia really that much better? The answer is obviously yes. And to do it back-to-back years is unbelievable with a 25-year-old walk-on quarterback, which is kind of unique. The other thing that I think is very interesting is now with name, image, and likeness, likeness, the NIL, when you land in Nebraska and Oklahoma and they come back and say, I got, an, I got a deal for you with a local dealership. I have something they're going to want to sponsor you at uh, XY Sporting Goods. I'm going to be able to get you a deal for with a major corporation, whether it's Adidas or Nike, and you get this in school, that, to me, is going to be the selling point. You know, Nick Saban was in the booth this week. He was working the pre- and post-game show to coach Alabama. And maybe it comes down to how many sponsors you get rather than the college atmosphere and the history that it brings. So I think the game is changing before our eyes. You know what the coaches are saying? Give me some rules and regulations. Because right now the NCAA is backed out. It is the Wild West out there, and I'm not too sure that 17-year-olds, I'm not saying they shouldn't have a degree of money, that's a different debate, but the 17-year-olds are being treated like they're 22-year-old first-round draft picks, but even they have a rookie cap. Right now, it is the Wild West, so you, got, you have a gymnast making $7 million now because she can work social media and has got yeah, so many... Yeah, and it's got so many likenesses. I just say come in with some regulation. It doesn't have to be oppression. I like that you generated a lot of money for that network. I like that the players got something. But I just don't want it to be the players with the most, the biggest donors become the best programs. Hard break, hard break. Here it comes, so we're done. Hey, Brian, thanks a lot. See you again soon. Go get him, Stuart. Thank you. All right, 1-866-408-7669. So he was just yelling out hard break. How How is that? Isn't that interesting? I would. I, I should do that. I mean, Eric, you would love that, right? Oh, it's great for radio. Yeah, just yell it out anytime. No, but, no, but when I'm at a hard break and you're getting nervous, 15 seconds, you'd rather me yell that out to, let's say, Brad Meltzer, rather than get cut off. Yes, because that way I know that you know we have a hard break. Coming. Right, but you want people at home to know that it, it's not your fault. Can't be avoided. <laughs> right, right. But you wanted to know the host's fault. If I yell hard break and they go through the hard break, then it's clearly that person's fault. Yeah, For example, it's on them. Maria Osmond today, we had Maria Osmond on, nicest person you'll ever meet. We asked a question with 35 seconds left that, subs- that needed about a three minute answer. Oh, no. That never gets easy. So, who asked the question knowing that there was 35 seconds left for a long answer? Sorry, I can't hear you. I cannot, I cannot uh, make out what you're saying. You got to get that mic fixed. Well, that's Pete. normally fine as long as you slip in like a, in 30 seconds and then ask your question. Like right now? Yeah, right now. Now, right now, I have no problem because you slipped it in at 30, right? I can say whatever I want. That's like about a 10 lifetime. Seconds, yeah. I can talk about how much I slept last night or didn't sleep last night, how great the first hour was, but then sooner or later, I'm going to be cut off. Correct, Eric? Can't be stopped. 
Right. Hard break, hard break, hard break. From the Fox News Radio Studios in Midtown Manhattan, it's the fastest growing radio talk show. Brian Kilmeade. Hey, thanks so much for being here, everybody. It's the Brian Kilmeade Show. You know I'm coming coming to you from 48th and 6th in Midtown Manhattan. Heard around the country, around the world. Top of the hour will be unoutnumbered. Bottom of the hour, you're going to love it. Bill Malusian in studio, the outstanding reporter who you see on the border, will be here giving us insight to the president's trip, the president's trip not only to the border, to Mexico. And now we got, and I love this, bipartisan group of senators at the border, hopefully seriously minded. We're not in an election year. We got Senator, uh, we have... Uh, uh, the Senator Murphy is there on the Democratic side. Senator Kelly's there on the Democratic side. Uh, Senator Coons is there from the Democratic side. Hopefully they realize this is tragic. It's not fair to the Border Patrol. You have to secure this border. Let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. Finding out that Gottlieb, who was the former FDA commissioner, and is a board member of Pfizer, which obviously has an enormous financial interest in the vaccines, was also pushing Twitter to suppress people he didn't like. Do you believe this? It was Brett Gerard. They just suppressed his tweet that talked about the vaccine. The Twitter files reveal more secret high-profile banning, and who was doing it is stunning. The guy that's going to be joining me shortly was banned because of his great reporting. Paul Sperry, I'll explain. Number two. You have to make an active effort to go down to El Paso on the border these days and not see a single migrant. It's almost impossible, and they managed to accomplish that. Bill Malusian, finally focused on Biden's busted border. A day after the president makes his first visit, senators follow as cartels are basically trying to take over Mexico. And the president's in Mexico City right now, making it clear he will not deliver anything. No joke. Number one. When you saw the photograph of the top secret documents laid out on the floor at Mar-a-Lago. What did you think to yourself? How that could possibly happen. How one, anyone could be that irresponsible. Right. Look in the mirror, Joe. Check the closet. When they did, they found Joe Biden's classified documents from his days as vice president, stored away in an unsecured environment, but they claim was locked in Washington at a derivative or a think tank associated with the University of Pennsylvania. Wait, isn't that exactly what Trump got Trump in trouble? Didn't he have it in a locked closet in Mar-a-Lago? And wasn't there at least Secret Service there to protect him and anything else? Your move, Merrick Garland and Kevin McCarthy, to see what will happen. So we're waiting on Paul Sperry, but I want to expand on this if I could. So here's the story, as I best to explain it. It came across, and I was encouraged by this, first NBC, then CBS. The DOJ announced that the on November 2nd, The White House said that Joe Biden, it was revealed, had documents with classified markings in a closet in Washington at a think tank unsecured. But they said it was locked. Really? His lawyer said the document, the attorney said, immediately alerted the White House when they found him because it was packing up his office because it was pretty clear he wasn't going to use that office because he's going to run for president again. He's got at least two more years in that office. So it turns out that Richard Sarber, the special counsel uh, to the president on classified documents, was found in his private office. So there's lawyers are now dealing with the attorney general. The attorney general ferried it out uh, to the U.S. attorney in Chicago, who happened to be appointed 
by President Trump to see what kind of documents were here, what was behind it was an intentional. The documents were not a subject of any previous request or inquiry by the archives. Since the discovery, the president's personal attorneys have cooperated with the archives at the Department of Justice in the process to ensure that any Obama-Biden administration records are appropriately in possession of the archives. Okay, number one, they're not. Number two is, I guess Barack Obama signed them out, but evidently he's got a ton in storage ready to go into his library if it's ever finished. President Biden got a question not from Fox and ignored it on why he had classified documents at his think tank. This is not going to go away, especially because you have a Republican House. Right now, let's go bring into Paul Sperry, a senior reporter for RealQueerInvestigations.com and The New York Post. Paul, thanks so much for the time. Hey, Brian. Thanks for having me. Yeah, Paul, I I, I got to your column and, and saw your name uh, that was uh, banned from Twitter as we get more and more expo- exposure on what exactly was taking place uh, before Elon Musk bought it. But just real quick, on the exposure of the fact that we now know that the former vice president, now president, had classified documents in a closet, what's your reaction? Well, it's this happened last year. This was the same time that he was ordering his uh, National Archives uh, director to turn over the boxes of um, uh, presidential records that, that Trump had given the, um, the archives, turn it over to the FBI so they could investigate Trump. Here he was doing the same thing. <laughs> he was uh, squirreling away, uh, harboring uh, presidential or vice presidential records, White House records uh, that included um, classified uh, documents uh, classified at the top secret, sensitive, compartmented information level, which is one of the highest uh, classification levels you can you can have. And uh, he he was you know going on 60 Minutes saying that that Trump was uh, totally irresponsible in uh, doing exactly what uh, former Vice President was doing uh, when he took his records there and put him in his private office. T- total double standard here. Well, let me ask you. I know he had another office, I think, at another college, supposed to be the Biden School of Government. I'd be very curious to see what else. And do you think if the FBI was really doing its due diligence, since there's a pat- there might be a pattern, maybe they, as Trump re- recommended, they should raid more of his houses and see what other documents are out. The National Archives evidently didn't know it was missing. Paul, you, you write in a column last week that you came home from your vacation to find an interesting email waiting for you from Matt Taibbi. Uh, and Matt Taibbi came out and was asked by Elon Musk to go through a lot of this communication uh, from the previous owners of Twitter. At which time, what did you find out, Paul, about what happened to you thanks to Adam Schiff? Yeah, so Adam Schiff uh, demanded Twitter ban me. This was in November 2020. Secretly sent a, a letter to them pressuring them to ban me from the platform. And three months later, I was banned, less than three months later. And uh, Twitter promised him uh, in the uh, memo that um, Taibbi released, thanks to Elon Musk, uh, he promised uh, they promised Schiff that they would quote unquote review my account for suspension. So I think this explains why Twitter could never give me a reason for my suspension, even though I broke none of its rules. They never give you a reason. Nope. We tried every every which way. Uh, we you know emailing, calling. My editors, everyone trying to figure out why I was suspended. They would never give us a reason. That, that actually breaks their own rules. If you look at their rules, they're supposed to give you an explanation. But when you make your own rules, you can break your own rules, and there's nobody <laughs> to enforce your own rules. That's right. Especially right. because what you did, Paul, every column, every time I see your name in a column, I go, this is going to be something I don't know. 
and you got such a uh, you're such a hard worker. You got some such great sources. You legitimately do investigation. For example, you thought you point to the column you wrote where you uh, outed the whistleblower in the impeachment investigation of President Trump. Could you explain explain who that was? Yeah. So Schiff didn't like the fact I outed his anonymous whistleblower as a, a partisan Democrat. He's a holdover from the Obama White House, working in the Trump White House. And he also didn't uh, like the fact that I exposed his, the whistleblower's prior relationship with the key member of Schiff's impeachment staff. Uh, you know, they were huddling before he even filed his complaint. So that was very suspicious that uh, the whole impeachment thing was not organically um, developed. It was um, part of a, a partisan political operation headed by Schiff. So I was kind of a, a thorn in Schiff's side. And he was angry. My stories went viral on Twitter, and he tried to silence me and remove content, uh, which is outrageous censorship by a powerful government official. Like he, he was the head of the House Intelligence at the time, and he was sworn to protect the First Amendment and free speech and the press. Paul, it's nuts uh, to think that he had that power, and the fact that he did it to you means he's done it before. Yeah. I mean, you, it's not I just mean, Paul he, Sperry. You got to think that he's done this to other people. Oh yeah, oh absolutely. That that there's there's much more to this story. There'll there'll be other documents found, and I'd like to know if you know if there's text messages between his chief of staff and, and Twitter, and you know they probably had phone conversations that we don't know about. Um, but it, it, you're right. It's it's outrageous. It's infuriating. Schiff interfered in my ability to do my job as a journalist. Um, for, for two years, I wasn't able to promote my stories on Twitter or break news on Twitter, or even access information um, on official government accounts. So are you going to take any legal action? Have you thought about this? Uh, we are exploring uh, legal options, including defamation um, with a watchdog group. So uh, uh, stay tuned. So I want you to hear what, Paul, uh, what Matt Taibbi told Tucker Carlson last week, because uh, as he'll explain his point of view, and the fact is, I think we're the only network that seems to care about this. Let's listen. I don't know where they're all coming from. I mean, it's been pretty weird. I've gotten threats and, you know, there's there's been harassment and all that stuff. But that comes with the territory. I'm not going to complain about it. But certainly the, the press backlash has, has been all of the same type. I mean, it's been remarkable to see how they're all using the same language and everything. It's, it's almost like they got a memo from somewhere, which is incredible. I don't know how they don't they think this isn't a story to, to see screenshots of, you know, where it says the FBI has asked you to, to look at this and this and this. Um, that's not a story. I, I, I don't know any journalist who would look at that and not think that a real journalist who would look at that and not think, well, that's cool. That's interesting. We, we got to we got to learn more about that. I mean, he's astounded. And from his perspective, yeah. he goes, I've, I've voted Democrat. My family's been Democrats all their lives. He indicates he's from the left. But he says journalism is journalism. For people to walk right. in and see all this untapped information that you get rid of the public. Isn't that why we got in this business? The, the, it's, it's completely disgusting and reprehensible that the mainstream media, the Washington Press Corps, has blacked out this story completely, the Twitter files story. This is one of the biggest stories of this century. Um, and, you know, shift is particularly because this is the first evidence that, that – um, a government official has gone after a, a working journalist uh, directly targeted. 
Um, so shifts, you know, this wider effort to muzzle the media, it's a huge story, and yet the Washington Post and Politico haven't touched it, or CNN. And that's, that's just outrageous, because this is, this is media censorship. They should care. You know, if, um, if I found out that Senator Ted Cruz was doing that to anybody at CNN or anybody at Washington Post, you have to take my word of it, I'd be just as outraged. I'd be like, what is he doing? Right. I mean, you got to right. be kidding me. Number one, it opens yourself up with all this criticism. Number one, you should never be doing that. That means you're insecure about your message, that you got to go make sure no one gets it out. What are you hiding? Uh, and, and I would feel the same way. Do Democrats understand that it's not going to end here? It, you're going to think, for the most part, it's Republican conservatives have been suppressed, but it won't end here. So Alex Berenson came out yesterday. He was asked to handle the next trench, at which time he finds out this about Scott Gottlieb going out of his way to stop a tweet from Brett Giroir, the former FDA uh, director, who came out and was saying that, you know what, natural immunity is as good as, as, uh, the, as the vaccine. So he wanted he went out of his way to say, we got to get rid of it. It's problematic. Listen to Berenson, cut 17. Finding out that Gottlieb, who was the former FDA commissioner and is a board member of Pfizer, which obviously has an enormous financial interest in the vaccines, was also pushing Twitter to suppress people he didn't like. Um, not just me, but in one case, a fellow Trump administration appointee um, who followed him as the acting FDA commissioner. Uh, later in 2019. That's how much Scott Gottlieb and Pfizer didn't want discussion of the vaccines. And he gets $340,000 from Pfizer because he's on their board, and they made $42 billion from the vaccine. I mean, that's unbelievable that a doctor would have that lack of ethics. And it's, it's actually your, your immunities, their natural immunities, actually. These studies have proven this over and over, that the, your natural immunity... Uh, to COVID is actually stronger than the vaccination immunity. Right. Oh, yeah. Oh, by the way, he was right. I was even forgetting about that. That was actually right, let alone because he's not saying what you want him to say, he's wrong. And that's what's going to be the next thing to come down, Paul, the COVID-19 revelations. You don't want to yep. get ahead of yourself, but I have a sense that if you have a distrust about Anthony Fauci, that's going to be inflamed shortly. Yeah, right, right. It, 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 the media has really hurt themselves because there could be stuff that's bigger and bigger, and they have sworn off this story. And, you know, especially going back to the media censorship part of it, I mean, there should be solidarity um, within the press corps. I mean, when I was kicked out of the Clinton White House for asking Clinton, the President Clinton about the uh, Chinagate uh, fundraising scandal, um, Helen Thomas, who is you know, she sure. was a very liberal uh, re- reporter. She was the dean of the White House, but she stood up for me. She stood up to Joe Lockhart and said, "You can't kick this guy out. Uh, he has every right to ask the president questions in any any scene, any venue, and the president has the right to decline to answer. And you can't do this." And you know, she she's she was very liberal. And maybe didn't like me covering that story. Who knows? But she stood up for me just on the on the basis of uh, free press principles. And where is that media today? Where is that old school, red blooded journalist journalism uh, type of um, ethics yeah. today in the media? I don't see it. Yeah, James Comer was on. Um, I think this week uh, was on Meet the Press. And they basically were told by Chuck Todd, you know, it's just going to be personal. If you go investigate President Trump, it's just going to be per- a personal attack. 
Really? A personal attack? Were you around for the Trump administration? That was nonstop on a daily basis along with the investigations. They're still investigating Trump's taxes, but it's not personal. Yeah, and in this talk about the double standard and the coverage already of uh, Biden's uh, secreted uh, classified documents, uh, White House records. CNN was on last night. They had the reporters doing damage control for him. They were they were giving all sorts of excuses. They were saying, "Well, this was probably bad packing, <laughs> bad packing at yes. the White House." Well, where did you did you hear anybody? <laughs> No, offer that for for Trump. No. Uh, then then uh, one of the reporters was on the CNN saying, uh, oh, this this was just an honest mistake. Right. Well, how do you how do you know that right off the bat? You were maligning gotcha. Trump and, and had the you know, had the worst, most nefarious um, motives uh, right. for what he did. But but, oh, it, it, this is just an innocent mistake. Right. Right out the gate for Biden. You could follow so that, that at double the double you stands know. ridiculous. You could follow him at Don't Paul Sperry. He's ba- I got you started, started, Paul. Thanks so much for your time. <laughs> Let's stay on top of this. Thank you, sir. All right. Great. Great talking with you. Back in a moment. Learning something new every day on The Brian Kilmeade Show. If you're interested in it, Brian's talking about it. You're with Brian Kilmeade. Great of Paul Sperry to join us, but you know he's joining us in studio. Uh, for really for the next segment, we have a few minutes with him, one minute with him now. Bill Malusian, Fox News correspondent. We got you off the border, Bill. What brought you here? A few meetings? A few meetings, and uh, yeah, they're going to send me to D.C. tomorrow night, I guess, to go after a few more politicians. Get That's what more... you did last time, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So who are you going? Well, you don't, you don't want to give away your Don't uh, want to give away it, still figuring it out. But yeah, we'll... Uh, We'll make a few people uncomfortable again. Right. So why is it that you never – you're at the border. It's 120 degrees, and you're not sweating. Oh, I am. Even the Border <laughs> Patrol says when you put the helmet on and go out with them, when you take it off, your hair is fine and you look fine. Oh, I promise you I am sweating, man. Maybe the camera just hides it a little bit. But you, those live shots in mid-July in Eagle Pass when it's 115 and humid and we got all the flies in our face, I promise you I'm dripping sweat. It may not show on TV, but I am. And right now it is – cold right it's cold yeah but uh the last live shot i did was an eagle pass and i had to wear three layers and a beanie it was 22 degrees i've never seen you in a beanie i've never worn one in my career up until that day so yeah it was it was chilly and people were still crossing in the water that's incredible well they have no choice they got so close hey bill inside your beat on the border in just a moment what you think the president is doing in mexico Radio that makes you think. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. My colleague MJ Lee asked the White House about the president not interacting or meeting with any migrants, and a senior administration official told her that it was because there were no migrants at the respite center at the time that the president visited and that it was coincidental. But, Poppy, I checked the migrant dashboard that the city of El Paso has, Uh and at the time when the president was here, there were nearly 1,000 migrants who were in federal detention. So if the president really wanted to see conditions, Uh I kind of doubt that the president of the United States would have been denied access. So Bill Malusian with us now, Fox News correspondent. Bill, you saw one of the first. That's a CNN reporter actually doing some reporting at the border, uh, really chronicling what the president didn't see. I just thought we'd play that because you're always so busy at the border. This is significant. Why do you think they all of a sudden are realizing this is a story? Elections over? The talk about Title 42 
um, the threat of huge numbers coming across the border. It was eventually going to be a story they, they couldn't avoid and couldn't miss. And I think what really set the tone was, remember last month, about a month ago, that huge caravan that crossed into El Paso where we had that wild footage of well over 1,000 people right. walking through the water, setting campfires up in the river. I think like the Del Rio with the Haitians under the bridge, that was a story where the images were too startling to ignore it. And that reporter that you just played from CNN, she's absolutely right in her report. There were a thousand migrants in federal detention when Biden went to El Paso. He actively decided not to go to the Central Processing Center to go visit some of those migrants, see them, see the conditions there. He could have done it, but what did he do instead? He went to a migrant assistance center run by El Paso County, where very conveniently— Nobody was there. There was not a single migrant there that day when they told him, yeah, we average, you know, three or four hundred per day. And that day there were zero. How does that happen? Well, it happens. I actually think he was misserved by his people because he could act like you go to a hurricane. You want to see the devastation. It's not your fault. So even though technically his policies are his fault, you could say, listen, this is a mess. And, you know, whatever Mayorkas is going to say about who's to blame. But instead, I watched for 40 minutes on a Saturday afternoon. See how empty my life is. (laughs) Uh, him do a demonstration as a as a drug sniffing dog yeah. found drugs in a Chevy Blazer or a pickup truck, yeah. and he acted amazed by it. For you who sees it every day, does it just frustrating? Yeah. Because, I, I mean, I wanted this side. Every time I go down there, I go, we got to just fix this. And this, he's not trying, it doesn't seem. For me, it was a head-scratcher that he started off at a port of entry. And for those who don't know, the port of entry is simply the bridge. He went to Bridge of the Americas where people and cars come through legally on a daily basis. That's not where the action is. The action is below that bridge in the river. Over 200,000 people a month for the last, I think, 10 months straight have been crossing in between ports of entry. In the river. We've been showing that video every single day. But he, for whatever reason, decided to go to a port of entry where there's little to no activity whatsoever. And they essentially played show and tell with CBP, looking at their tools, looking at some of the cute dogs and how they're sniffing out the drugs. If he really wanted to see what was happening in El Paso, go a couple miles away to the river where there are still people camped out in the river with campfires, where the Texas National Guard had to set up with barbed wire all over the place because the border wasn't secure in that area. He could go to any of the number of areas where there's holes in the border wall people are climbing through. He, he didn't go to any of that. He didn't see any of that. It's clear his team didn't want him to be around any of that. It was a very sanitized, controlled approach. Your, your hurricane analogy, it's like the equivalent of a, of a president going into a hurricane zone after the storm is left and then never leaving the airport to go see where the damage is. Would be unacceptable. Yeah. I mean, when, when you think about it, when Bush flew over uh, Katrina and didn't get out of the plane, mm-hmm. he came back and, and, and looked down at the window and they put that picture out. He suffered that politically even to this day. Yeah. The biggest mistake ever. Yeah. So we'll see if we have um, right now the president of the United States in Mexico City meeting with the president of Mexico and the president of uh, Canada. Yesterday they made it clear there'll be no deliverables. Mm-hmm. The fact is they made an arrest of El Chapo's son. What has happened since and how does that relate to the border? Well, I'm sure you saw some of the videos of what happened after that arrest with all the crazy cartel gunfights. And they had to bring in Black Hawk helicopters shooting machine, gun down, uh, machine guns down on cartel convoys. It left 30 people dead. There was widespread violence. But what that does, it essentially destabilizes the situation in an already unstable situation. Because you already have the cartels fighting with each other, right? They fight over what are called plazas for drug smuggling routes, human smuggling routes. Now you throw the Mexican government into it and they take one of the main kingpins off the table. And that just introduces more anarchy, more chaos at a time when these cartels are already fighting with each other. And the Sinaloa cartel, who they went after, they're one of the biggest 
organizations pushing fentanyl into our country. It's them and CJNG, which is cartel, uh, the right. new, ge- new generation Jalisco cartel. Them and the Sinaloa cartel go head-to-head in terms of the fentanyl trafficking. So what we're going to see now is likely a lot more chaos south of the border. And you mentioned it, no deliverables from that meeting. A lot of people don't realize how big of a part Mexico plays in what's happening at our border right now. Because before these people ever get to our border, they cross into Mexico first, and they do it in, in typically in two areas. They either cross in the south in Tapachula, or sometimes they fly into the city of Monterrey, and then they bus up to the border. And Mexico just hands out like candy these humanitarian visas for 30 days that allow the migrants to travel within Mexico legally. And what do they all do? They go straight to the northern border with the U.S. Mexico knows it. They all cross over illegally. And when I'm in places like Eagle Pass and I'm down at the riverbank, all over the riverbank, you see those 30-day visas that all the migrants get rid of and they throw down all their paperwork once they cross into the U.S. They don't need it anymore, and they don't want the U.S. to know that they've settled in another country. I had an event in McCallum, yeah. and they were telling me that all over McCallum are pieces of the wall that's paid for that's mm-hmm. not constructed. Oh, yeah. How effective is the barrier? What does it do? What it does is it allows – Border Patrol to create ch- choke points. So no, nobody realistically thinks the wall should be from San Diego to Brownsville and every inch of the ground sure. be covered. There's mountainous terrain. It's, it's physically impossible. But what agents tell us the wall does do is there are parts of the open desert and parts of the border where they, they, they have like 19,000 agents. You can't cover that much of the border with that manpower. So what that does is the wall is a force multiplier. It covers parts of the border where they don't have agents and it creates funneling and choke points to where migrants have to cross in certain areas where they do have the manpower. It allows you to have decent amount of manpower. Right yes. now they're understaffed and they're overworked. Yes. And if the president of the United States really want to get the true story, he would meet with the Border Patrol Union. Yeah. And he loves unions. Mm-hmm. Ask the president, unions built the country. But he didn't want any part of this mm-hmm. because we've watched Mayorkas get an earful from these border agents. Yeah. You've seen the video. You might have provided it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, whenever Mayorkas goes to one of these Border Patrol stations, he usually gets a pretty frosty reception from some of the, the border agents. We've gotten some of that audio where right. we had the, the one agent turn his back on Mayorkas. Um, we've had, remember we got the leaked audio where Mayorkas admitted in private when he didn't think anybody was listening, uh, we're losing. This crisis is unsustainable. We're about to lose the border. That was all behind closed doors. And he said that in summer of 2021, things have only gotten worse since then, but then he goes in front of Congress and what does he testify? That the border's secure. What he tells the public and what he says to agents behind closed doors are two very different things. So Mayorkas wanted to take took aim, and he fired away. Mm-hmm. But not of the people you think, Mexico, the cartels. Listen to who he took aim at. Governor Abbott uh, is not collaborating with the federal government on an issue that requires collaboration. We cannot have the rights and the needs of individuals who are seeking humanitarian relief in the United States be exploited for political purposes. Do you think we, that they're being exploited for political purposes? No. Is that Governor Abbott's no. objective for, who just won re-election? First off, they all sign a waiver before they get on these buses. They get to choose which city they go to. They get free food. They get free water. They get a free ride to go wherever they want. Paid for by the state of Texas. Right. That no one's being forced onto these buses against their will. If they, Mayorkas can go to Del Rio where these buses are staging and literally look at the paperwork the migrants are signing before they get onto these buses. And 
I'm, other media outlets, CNN, have talked to these migrants before they get on the buses and asked them, are you being coerced? Do you want to go? No, we're excited to go. We want to go. We want to go to New York. We want to go to D.C. There's nobody who's being forced onto these buses. I just feel bad because I've only been, I've been down there four times. Uh-huh. Every time I feel bad leaving the Border Patrol behind because this is a life that they were saying how frustrating it is that they just pick up these guys, they drop them off, they process them, they can't mm-hmm. even be Border Patrol. Also, also, officers that are past the point where they should be on the border mm-hmm. are out. And then I walked into the facilities, and you see these families behind bars to protect them from the men Mm -hmm. who they may or may not be related to. Mm -hmm. Remember the DNA kits and the swipes to see who they're related to? And I thought to myself, for one day, I can't believe it. Then I walk outside, and you see the tents and people just standing, Mm -hmm. just standing. And I'm like, what are they doing? I mean, what is the goal here? And the goal is they're eventually going to be in our country. Uh, Just real quick, you're doing such an incredible job. The White House does not like you. They think that you are what? What do they claim that you're doing? They say that my coverage is alarmist, to which I respond, what's happening down there is alarming. And you provide the footage and the yeah. drone footage work with the drone team. Every live shot I do, I'm not standing there and saying, I think this border is out of control and this is crazy Never and Biden that. should be, you know, impeached. I don't say anything like that. All I do is I say, take a look at what our drone saw this morning. Take a look at this video we shot last night. We are showing the visual evidence of what is happening there every single day. It's not just happening there magically because our cameras are there. If we weren't there, the same thing is going to be taking place every day. All we are doing is we are holding up a mirror to the country, and we're showing what's happening. Just about you. I watched you contributing to our channel pretty regularly. You were describing to me the first time you came on Fox when you were with an affiliate (laughs) with Greta. Yes. So that was uh, summer of 2014. I was working in El Paso where I began my career. I was covering the border. And uh, Greta Van Susteren's show called me and asked if I would do a live shot for them from El Paso about the border, about a story I was doing, and be their lead story. And uh, I had a little moment of hesitation in my head, thinking about all the things that could go wrong. If I mess it up, I'm going on YouTube. My career is over. That's but you said your so, goal was to get here by 30, Yes. Right? So I said yes. And uh, I went to do it, and I remember as the show opened and I was listening to it in my earpiece, I was so nervous I could feel my heartbeat in my ears. And then once I started talking, a wave of calm came over me, and now it feels like what I do today. You know, it feels like these live shots feel like breathing now. So it it went well, and uh, then Hannity had me do a few, and then it, it, you know, got me on the radar with Fox, and the rest is kind of history. And Tucker, I saw you a lot on with Tucker, too. Yes, yeah. And you were covering— Yeah, uh, George Gascon. When I worked, I I was an investigative reporter at the Fox affiliate in Los Angeles for four years. And the last couple years, I covered George Gascon, the DA in L.A., a lot uh, with some of his pretty wild— progressive policies, if you want to call them that, in terms of uh, all those pro-criminal policies. That's what they are. Um, and uh, Tucker had me on probably like at least 20 times, highlighting some of those stories. And uh, yeah. So, I mean, now that you're here, you're here for a couple of meetings. Yep. Now you're 32? I'm 32 now, yeah. 32 years. You want to yep. get here by 30, that's a goal. Reach. Yep. What is your long-term goal? Because almost everybody I talk to says, Bill Malusian is killing it. Have you met him? And I say no. We talked on the air a few <laughs> yeah. times. But you are unbelievably talented, and what a contributor already. What has been the response? Thank you. Oh, it's been, it's been great. It's been overwhelming. Um, I mean, we obviously put a lot of time, sweat, and it's a grind down there at the border, right? But it's a really important story, and everybody at Fox has been absolutely fantastic. It's great when I get to join you guys on the air. And uh, the crews they send me down there with make it all so much better. Those drone teams are oh, freaking awesome. I know. And uh, we got great cameramen, great producers, and uh, full team effort. We're going to keep it going. All right, and Bill Malusian will. I'm going to go on out number at the top of the hour. More to know next. Bill Malusian, thanks so much. Thanks for having me. The more you listen... 
the more you'll know. It's Brian Kilmeade. Hey, welcome back, everybody. You know, in a, in a few minutes, I'm going to be on Outnumbered. But before I do, I'd like to find out if I need to know more and you need to know more. In fact, it's called More to Know. More to Know. Sponsored by Unplugged. Reclaim your privacy from big tech snooping with Unplugged. Visit Unplugged.com. All right, here we go. Number one, Georgia won the 2023-2023 College Football National Championship game. Final score was 65-7. to These were supposedly the best two teams in football. I don't think so. The Bulldogs end up 15-0. Back-to-back national championships. Let's listen to a little of the Georgia fun. Keeper, Bennett, gets a block. Georgia draws first blood. Bennett, keep it all away and just sauntering into the end zone. His second rushing touchdown. And Georgia throwing haymakers and building a big lead now. Bennett looking this time to the edge. Mitchell, one-handed catch for a touchdown. All right, we get the idea. Stetson Bennett, the fourth, was a shining star. The walk-on at 304 yards, six touchdown passes. Uh, Actually, two rushing, four passing. So he came out in the third quarter. Uh, we'll see if they can continue to keep it up. I like to see him do something. I love when college players who people say can't achieve, like Doug Flutie and Tim Tebow, they get their window to achieve. Hopefully they'll take advantage of it. Next, the Buffalo Bills safety, DeMar Hamlin, has been released from a Buffalo house, released from the hospital in Cincinnati. He's traveling back to Buffalo to continue his recovery. I still like to know what happened. Why don't we ever find out what happened? No one asks this question. Yeah, I mean, definitely what I, what I want to see is what rule changes will they make? Are they going to pa- make a panic changes? That's well, what I'm going to see. panic change because they won't even diagnose what happened. I'm just wondering if they're going to say it's one of these things that happened, what we discussed, uh, where you get a shot at the, at the wrong time in between beats. I right. understand it. Yep. But why are they so hesitant? Next, Ronald Reagan's daughter, Patty Davis, speaks up. That's a, you're not usual. But she says she has regrets and warns Prince Harry ahead of his book release, which is too quite, uh, too late, to be quiet. Listen to her regrets after she spoke up for years about her family. I think you told our producer that almost immediately, like even during your book tour, you kind of regretted mm-hmm. having written the book. How did you, what was the process like of coming to grips with that and then coming, as Hoda was saying, to reconciliation? How did you get on that path to healing for yourself as well. You know, it was a lot of internal work. It was a lot of grief, really, yeah. to to accept that I had made a huge mistake and I'd made it publicly. I mean, it was like 40 years ago now, but it was brutal. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was, I, you know, I was like hated. I mean, I got death threats. It was, it was really, really brutal. And so there was some grief in there, but there were, I also really had to just go do a lot of internal work. Gotcha. And she's now 70 years old. She's very critical of her parents, saying they were terrible parents. Who were her parents? Nancy Reagan. Ronald Reagan, uh, beloved by the country. She says, naively, I put my feelings and my own truth out there for the world to read. My family might also come on to understand me better, but it didn't work out that way. Uh, but it's too late. I mean, Harry's blown up everything. Next, Kate Winslet, sweetly encouraging a young journalist during their first interview. I want you to listen to a little of this. She's a superstar. We know that. And instead of being condemning when this person looked nervous, she was supportive. Listen. Um, it's my first time. This is your first time? Yeah. Doing it? Okay, well, guess what? When we do this interview, yeah. it's going to be the most amazing interview ever. Okay. And do you know why? Why? Because we've decided that it is going to be. <laughs> so we've decided right now, me and you, yeah. this is going to be a really fantastic interview. 
Okay. And you can ask me anything that you want, and you don't have to be scared. Everything's gonna be amazing. Okay. Okay, you got this. Yeah. Okay, let's do it. Now, that's so nice. As the German television networks, ZDF, they were talking about Avatar, the way of water. I was gonna go to Avatar. It's over three hours long. I don't, I don't do anything for three hours. Now, would you go Except to a movie, like in the old days, they would, what they would do is they would have an intermission. Like when The Godfather came out, three hours, but there was an intermission, so you have a 10-minute break. Or Listen, whatever. I wouldn't come back. I mean, just the leave. intermission is a chance to escape without humiliation walking up. I mean, listen, I, I appreciate, I guess you pay all that money, you're going to give people their entertainment, but I imagine they're not happy in theaters because you can't turn over the theater. It's, it's, it's breaking records, and it looks like it's actually going to surpass okay, what do Top, Gu- uh, Top Gun uh, sequel. Really? Is it that good? Did you yeah. see it? No, I was never into the first one. Will it make you cry? I Not you. Of it, course I not. had to sit through it. It probably would. <laughs> Next. Liam Hensworth should take over the James Bond franchise from Daniel Craig, says the guy who took the torch from Sean Connery. George, La- uh, George Lazenby. Did you watch? I didn't know this. there was one. Yeah. Best known as the Bond after Sean, tells TMZ, Liam deserves Hollywood's fame license to kill for a whole host of reasons. George says Liam has the acting resume worthy of the next Emma, the next agent, also as uh, Agent 6, whatever it is, MI6. Also, enough experience. Don't you think he's too big of a star, though? I think he's too big of a star. Hensworth. I don't know if he's too big, Liam Hensworth is. Lazenby, though, made that one movie on Her Majesty's Secret Service in between Connery. Connery came back for one more, and then we got Roger Moore. Right. We know that. I was just watching this cut with... Uh, uh, with Sean Connery. He was very good. Brian Kilman Show. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.